Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the Ruan story with my friend Ben McLean. How's it going, Ben? Great, great. Thanks very much for having me, Joe. I'm very excited to talk to you. We've, we've been blabbing offline uh, yesterday and today, and I'm excited to finally get to this topic. Ben, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Sure. Uh, my name is Ben McLean. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Ruan Transportation Management Systems. We're, we're headquartered in Des Moines, Iowa, yet our people and operations and assets are all over the country and beyond. Yep. And I can see a little bit of Des Moines out your back window. What floor are you on over there? Yes, we're, we're at the 30, it's 32nd floor here in the in the Ruan building in downtown Des Moines. Yeah, you guys got a whole bunch of floors there, right? We do, and and some of our new services, specifically managed transportation, have been great growth stories for us over the last couple of years, and I'd love to see those floors grow up and expand to the next and the next after that. I've said this before on my podcast. The first time I went to Ruan, I knew I was going to downtown Des Moines, and I thought, okay, there's a terminal in downtown Des Moines. I guess that's where I'm going. I was thinking, that's weird that there's a terminal. And then I remember somebody told me, it's not a terminal. And then I went and I stayed in the Hyatt next door to your building. And then I was like, oh my God, it's a it's a <laughs> office building. I know you have terminals or DCs or whatever you want to call them all over the place. Yeah. But it was surprising to me when I was like, oh, you're going to see a trucking company in Des Moines. And it's, you stay in a Hyatt and then go to a really nice <laughs> nice building next door. Well, and, you know, a lot of that was our founders' involvement in, in downtown Des Moines and in many ways giving back and reinvesting in this city when it was not in great shape and many businesses were moving out. And he'd done well with our transportation business and made a decision that he was going to reinvest in downtown. So built this building, built the Marriott next door. The family business is a, we have Bankers Trust, which is a family bank, family owned bank that's also in this building as well. But it was a lot about him being thankful for what Des Moines had given him and the ability to grow his business here and he wanted to reinvest. So it is a little bit unique, but it's part of a unique story of our 90 year old business. Yep. Um, ben, so tell us a little bit about what Ruan does. Give us the, I know you do a lot, but give us that overview. Sure. I, you know, I think the easiest way to define what we do is kind of to, to just describe our four major service areas. Uh, first, our dedicated contract transportation, and that's many of the trucks that you'd see on the road. Many of them, you see the names of our customers on the on the equipment, but, but we are a, an outsourced private fleet for many, many customers uh, around the country. And so that'd be one service since probably our, you know, it's probably the core or the, or the, the historical one where, from which we came. But our managed transportation business, non-asset based, very large, the, the people, process, technology to manage, optimize, plan, transportation for our customers. That, that's a lot larger than probably most know. It's about, it's a little over 40% of the revenue of our business today. It's not as visible but it's certainly a very impactful part of what our company is. And it's been a great growth story for us, especially over the last 10, 10 or so years. We, we run truckload brokerage business, which is a big and growing part of what we do as well. And then we run a lot of warehouses for many 
traditionally manufacturing customers, but many of them have just been in and kind of a continuation of the services we've provided elsewhere. So we find that many of our customers, because of the relationship we have with them, ask us to do more and to play larger roles in their in their supply chains. And we've been fortunate to be able to do that through those four services. Yep. I want to come back and talk a little more about those services, those four big chunks. And by the way, when you say dedicated, you mentioned a lot of trucks you see rolling down the road with a name brand on it. It could be a Ruan driver and a Ruan truck. <laughs> and I, I've called it a Ruan inside, just like Intel inside. Isn't that clever? It certainly. Oh, <laughs> yes, right. I've never heard that comparison before. But we do, we, we take great pride in that. And, I mean, it does that, – that, ex, that example does somewhat define how we view our customer relationships is we are an extension of them. And we are we are well aware that that delivery, especially when it's – not even to perhaps their own stores, for instance, in the grocery world, but to their end customers. We're highly aware that we are an extension of their brand. And, you know, we, we take a lot of steps to, to honor and, and uh, you know, uh, deliver that kind of service to them, knowing how visible we are to their own customers. Oh, yeah. So, Ben, we'll get back to all that. But first, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined the juggernaut that is Ruan. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. All right. My, my father was in, my parents met there. My father was in the public school system uh, where I went to school. It's called Forest Hills Central. And he, he was the interim superintendent there for a bit. And during that time, he and his team were able to rebuild our high school because of the great growth that we were seeing in Western Michigan. And that was a special part of his career. But certainly as a young kid, I was, I was looking at what my dad was doing and what his career was all about. He um, ultimately then was on the radar of a, a large retailer and grocer that's, that's uh, present in Western Michigan and, and helped them join them in properties, help them expand their stores and grow their own business and uh, eventually was CEO there. And so I had this growing up, you know, this really great mentor and, and leader in my father. And so as I went to school and uh, they were able to send me to Northwestern in near Chicago. Nice. I was a computer engineer. So I was a math and science kid and went, went as a mechanical engineer. My older brother was a mechanical engineer in college. And uh, I said, all right, you know, I looked up to him as well. We're both math science guys. I'm going to go do mechanical engineering. And I took my first, one of the first core, you know, required classes for engineers was a programming course. And this is in the mid nineties. And I took that programming course and I'd remembered some of the programming I'd done before when I was a kid growing up. And it just really clicked with me. And I said, I'm going to stay close to technology, computers. And I switched my major to computer engineering and uh, ultimately graduated with a computer engineering degree from Northwestern. Very nice. Yes, yeah. Yeah, before you leave Grand Rapids, I don't think people realize, like, when they think about Michigan, they think of automotive. And automotive is obviously, you know, a huge business and always will be, I think, for this region. Sure. But that's southeastern Michigan. That's Detroit. Grand Rapids is two, two and a half hours away, depending where you're at. And Grand Rapids has Meyer, And Meyer for... And that was your dad was the CEO. Meyer is such a presence in the Midwest. By the way, uh, in your dad's honor, today I walked up to Meyer before the interview. And I bought some chicken salad and I walked back. It's only about a mile, but it's worth it. Nice day. I hadn't been to Meyer since last night at 10 o'clock, so I had to get back. Um, but Meyer 
is like, I think it's six states in the Midwest around Michigan and people in Michigan take such pride in Meyer. I imagine it's the same, like uh, how people feel about Walmart down in Arkansas. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine. So, and of course, having a, a parent who worked there, I mean, Meyer raised our family center, sent my brothers and I to college. And so we, you know, got to watch our dad have a successful career there. And then also the great impact that that family business made on Western Michigan. And so along oh, yeah. And a number of other great businesses there within and out, but outside of automotive, it's certainly there's a, it's a, it was a great place to grow up. And, um, and it's actually one of the reasons we chose Des Moines was we felt there were a lot of similarities between. Oh yeah. They're the same city in a lot of family ways. And, and, um, and, you know, raise our own kids in a, in a similar type of city. It's, it's one of those cities that's big enough, but small enough, man. What I mean by that is it doesn't have all the urban ills. I mean, Grand Rapids is Amway it's got uh, Meyer. It's got probably five or six other seal cases there. Uh, Herman Miller's there. You have the Industries is there. Another great, uh, great business that's been there. For you have all those beer. You have all those breweries there. It sure. for an area that used to be dry, they have a lot of breweries <laughs> now, and it's right on that area is right near Lake Michigan, which is just so beautiful. It is. And by the way, my youngest daughter went to Aquinas, which is oh, sure. a little Catholic college over there. Got a degree in sustainable business. I think that's the first sustainable business program in America. So. Oh, no kidding. Well, I remember Aquinas as a, as a middle schooler and high schooler for summer basketball camp. So I have some connections there. I probably spend most time in their gym. But uh, yeah, they got a new gym. They got a brand new gym now. All right. So great place to grow up in Grand Rapids. And so you went to Northwestern a few hours away, studied computer science, you said? Okay, well, switched to computer engineering. So very similar computer to science. You did a lot more with microprocessor design and some of the hardware side of, of computers, which was all fascinating, really fascinating and, and around a lot of really smart people, which was you know, oh, yeah. creating and challenging all at the same time. You guys don't always have a great football team, but you always have a great school. <laughs> <laughs> We've we, There's been some uh, reasonably significant ups and downs with the football program, but uh, I was there in the 90s and they went to the Rose Bowl and I thought, hey, this is... That they, is significant they, when they go because... Those are smart, smart football players. Yeah, there is, there are no bubbas on that team. It's, it's been a good program. I think they do things the right way. So they, it's a easy program to be a, a fan of. Yep. So where'd you go after you graduated? I actually went, I came into Northwestern with, with enough AP credits that I was able to take a, a quarter, basically, you know, almost a semester off and work for about five or six months for Deloitte Consulting is what they were called then. Nice. Deloitte now, but it was, uh, it was go write code, implement systems. And so I was able to do that while I was still in, in college. That was kind of one job I had. And then I worked for a, actually wrote code for a, a professor as well with, a, with one of his um, uh, uh, PhD students. So I was able to work and earn some money in school. And then the, the opportunity to be with Deloitte was, was started while I was in college and then it continued after I graduated. I, I started working there full time once I graduated. And great, really great learning. And, and again, with from a lot of great people that were um, that I was able to work with there. What was the next stop after Deloitte? Uh, sure. So Deloitte, I was, again, I was on site with clients every day, observing how our Deloitte leaders worked and interacted with 
with our clients and building complicated financial systems. So I was a, again, a developer and it, I love that work. You know, I, this gets back again to kind of the mentors and role models you have in my life. My dad was a, was a, a business leader and in a reasonably well-rounded one and did a lot of different things, you know, in the operations and leadership of a company. I, I kind of knew that I love technology, but I felt like I only had one slice of what a lot of, a lot of business, what it was like to, to lead in business. So I knew I wanted to go back and get my, my MBA. And at some point during that exploration, the concept of getting a joint degree where you would go for in, for one period of time and get both a law degree and an MBA became of interest to me. And in candidly, you know, you think about people who have their whole lives thought out. I don't know that I had a, a really fantastic plan, but I, I loved the academics that I had at Northwestern. I loved the learning that I was able to get the people that I learned with and from. And law was very different. We had no lawyers in our family, uh, no one who'd studied it. And so I looked at that as a new and different challenge. And I, you know, I kind of avoided heavy reading courses in college. I didn't write a whole, whole lot, right? You could usually walk out of an exam and know you had the right answer because you solved the equation or, you know, did the integral or whatever, you know, derivation you needed to do to get the right answer. And I kind of saw law as a different challenge. And it certainly was. You went from the world of logic and in mechanics and engineering to the world of, of persuasive communication, writing, reading, oration in some cases, if you're, if you're, you know, in, in court or in litigation. And so that to me was, a, as I look back on my career, it was a step into a, a uncomfortable place. Where'd you go? I, I went back to Northwestern. I went to, oh, the good Kellogg. Choice. I went to Kellogg and, and, and Northwestern Law School and um, they had a great joint program you got you moved a little bit because the the business school is up in Evanston, the law school is still downtown. But the ability to go do both of those things and to be business school was a little bit more what I was ready for and training for. Law school was a was a different animal, a, a really fascinating academic learning experience. Certainly has helped me in my role today. We we're reviewing a contract just yesterday, but it was also I think most importantly if I talked to younger people growing up and coming up in their careers, it was a step outside the comfort zone. And that I've looked back on my career where so much of the growth and, and uh, experience has come from is when you get out of the comfort of the day to day and you go do something that's quite different from, from a lot of what you've learned before. So it's really, really challenging. I did. I, I lost a lot of sleep before that first round of law school exams. I remember I told myself I wasn't going to do that, but I got very, very much into the learning and into the, the law school mode and learned a whole lot. And again, met, met a lot of great people when I was there. Wow. Well, Kellogg's, I just, uh, the, Kellogg's another great Michigan company and they're in Western Michigan until recently. I think they just moved Kellogg company to Chicago. And I'm assuming... I'm assuming that's for talent because it's not always easy to say, hey, come on, where are they at? Battle Creek or something. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. I was born in Marshall, Michigan, which is right near Battle Creek. So I can remember as a kid going into two of their plants and, you know, getting to sample some of their, their cereal as it came off the, the, the production line. Um, but I, I wasn't aware uh, of that move. Yeah, yeah, you should look it up. So anyway, where'd you, where'd you go after you get, got the 
uh, your law degree and your dual MBA with your undergrad in computers. <laughs> right. And, you know, I do, as I look back at all that learning, there's, I'm happy that I sought out the breadth of the different types of, of learning in different disciplines. And so the next step was I went to work for an investment bank called William Blair. I'd done a summer working for a, for a, a law firm in New York. And so my wife and I looked at whether we wanted to move to the East Coast and live in Manhattan, work for a great firm called Cravat, Swain & Moore, and uh, still keep it. They're white glove up there, right? It, it was a, you had to be a reasonably successful, competitive student to have an opportunity to work there. So I was very proud to do it. And I was debating between whether I'd, I'd return there or work in an investment bank. And I think it was ultimately the work of investment bankers and investment banking that I really wanted to see and be a part of. And uh, from 2005 to 2007, I would say I was very much part of it. It was an active M&A market. I worked with a great team. I did a lot of, I worked across a lot of different industries. I had a technology background, so I kind of leaned towards working with the technology team at William Blair. But again, fantastic experience, a lot of, a lot of hours, Probably not something I would have been able to do easily with with young kids. My wife and I didn't spend a whole lot of time together those two years, but learned an incredible amount. You got to understand deal making and mergers and acquisitions. We did some public equity work and worked with just some really great, talented people. So again, it's kind of every step along the way. I was really lucky to to learn a lot from some hardworking, smart, experienced uh, leaders with whom I worked, and then just. Again, it was the, the job I'd had really the, the last full time, time job I had before that I was writing code. So I went from writing code to, you know, working on M&A deals and again, way outside the comfort zone. And it was but again, a great learning experience. And I, I sunk my heart and soul into it for a couple of years and just had great experiences doing it and learned, learned a whole lot. Where'd you go next after that? Well, then 2007, my father-in-law had, you know, over time just suggested that they'd had this family business and it wasn't, there wasn't a well-defined succession plan for Ruan. And, you know, we were living in Chicago then. We were a young couple. We didn't have kids yet. And we were enjoying being, you know, we lived in, in Lincoln Park downtown. Oh, I love it there. Yeah, sure. Right. And we, so we, and great. I'm not memories. allowed there. Too old now. <laughs> yeah, that could be. But probably my, this, I like to drive through the old neighborhood, but, but we were kind of, I was kind of of the mind. I grew up in Michigan. We made the move to Chicago. I think we're going to be good here. But we did again start to think about a couple of, a couple different things. I love the work that we did in, in investment banking. A lot of, kind of high adrenaline, really important acquisitions, transactions, sale processes, where a founder or a family business or, or maybe a private equity owned business is making that exit. And so those are enormously important transactions to, to the owners of those businesses. And so just very high stakes, very high intensity work. What I did miss though is kind of the engineering side of the world and being in operations and working on building it and developing building it. And so I, yeah. I didn't miss that part. And so here's this family business. It's in transportation. Again, not a not an industry that I spent really I had one job in high school where I it it wasn't it wasn't a cool place to be in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Well if it's if it's cool now, you gotta let me know. But uh it, I, it's, I, it's I, supply chain matters today. It's I'm on sure the news. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. 
I think it's always mattered, right? But I do. I, I would agree. We have a little more, a little more the panache. <laughs> it's certainly we're more in the in the spotlight, whether whether we like it or not. But I'd had one job where I worked for a meatpacking plant, washing reefer uh, trailers inside and out. Not, not that was probably the least job I've had in transportation. But but that was also the only experience I had, kind of moving into to uh, as I as I considered becoming part of the business but I, it was it was this unique opportunity to to be a part of a family business obviously I'd seen my dad in this great family business and the impact that they had on their community and just how that what they did in their business served a purpose and so I started to see those things and the opportunity to to eventually if things worked out be a part of the leadership of the company and influence the culture and you know live out the purpose of the business and that started to i thought if we don't do this now that we we will likely have missed out on on an opportunity that will never come around again and that was that was what led me and still there's a lot i didn't know and, and i've since learned but that that was really the thinking that led me to say we should try this because it's not it's a unique opportunity and it's not and no one else is doing it. And I think my friends at, at the firm were quite surprised about the investment banking to transportation and logistics or to trucking, probably as they would have thought about it. So it was a, it was, it was a different move. But again, a lot of that's a big move. So, so of course, Ruan's interested. You're part of the family. You're married into, you married to Ruan and you have that experience cleaning out reefers. That's an important job over there. So I'm sure they said, Ben, get over here. There's tons of dirty reefers. Let's exactly. get going. If this other stuff doesn't work out. This kid can, can clean up our, our assets. So I, I, and I can, yeah, and I actually came back into the technology group. And so my father-in-law got me a, an office up on the 32nd floor where I sit now, where more of the executives are. And, and I said, well, I'm in the IT group and uh, my team's two floors down. We, we, I, I really ought to be there. And so I moved down into the cubes down with the IT team and we were integrating a couple of acquisitions that we'd made and uh, building technology again. So we really just started, you know, very much on the ground floor in the IT department. But did great work, loved the work, and kind of got back into learning the business, starting really from the technology side, but never looked back. And it's been a great experience. Let's switch gears. So I know uh, you, you touched on it just uh, in the top of the top of the interview. Ruan's been around 90 years. So your wife's generation is what, the third generation? Third generation, Yes. So talk a little bit about the history of Ruan because it has grown. Like you mentioned, we'll get back to the dedicated managed trans truckload and warehousing in a minute. But give us a little bit of that history. Sure. You know, it's there, there's so much history. I know. that, But you can't do all of it. <laughs> no, I know. It's, but it's certainly to start from the start where, where it all started because it's, it's a fascinating story about my wife's grandfather, our founder, John Ruan. He was at Iowa State, which is – 30 some miles up the road. And there are a lot of Iowa State people at Ruan. <laughs> there are. There are. We're, I don't know if what's more, more Hawkeyes or Cyclones. Well, you know, that debate, certainly <laughs> to get back to the football conversation, is uh, that's that's when there's the least kind of cohesiveness amongst. amongst I agree. We have fans on both sides. But yeah, I just think, you know, the closeness and connection, and certainly our founder had a long connection with Iowa State. Um, it, you know, has caused, you know, some of that 
the proximity, but we've gotten a lot, we do have a lot of great team members from Iowa State. And he was there as a freshman in the what, 1930s. So think Great Depression. His, his father was a doctor, so the family had the money to send him to college back in those days, even though it was probably a difficult time to do so. But the stock market crashed. His father lost all the family savings and I think was probably in ill health. And between that crash and his ill health, he died young. So now he's without his father. The family has no money. And his mom lets him know that he can't return to Iowa State because they can't afford it. And so he'd already started a couple of businesses as a teenager before he entered Iowa State. And that entrepreneurial spirit once again kicked in. He, through a connection he had, he found that if he could get a truck, he could start hauling gravel to support himself and his family in this new life. I looked it up, 1932. <laughs> 1932, right. And so he traded in the family car, he got a truck, and he drove southeast to here a ways. I think the town's I think is called Chillicothe. And uh, July 4, 1932, he shows up to this gravel site. There's still a crew working later in the day, and they need their first load of gravel hauled, which he did. So our founding is on July 4, 1932. Oh, and nice. This is a, you know, kind of the family lost everything. So how do people respond through these challenging times? And our founder responded by building this business, by sleeping in a tent at a, at a gravel site to start to start our company 90 years ago. So it's a fascinating story. And of course, he was just such a great entrepreneur. And the the business that, that, that I'm in, run transportation management systems, is just really a part of everything he built. So there's the real estate that's here, the, the Bankers Trust, which is the, the bank that he ultimately acquired sole control of. Later in his life, the World Food Prize was was and continues to be a very significant philanthropic endeavor of which he had many. What is that? The World Food Prize, I would describe it as the, the foremost prize in the in the world for food and agriculture, for for individuals that are advancing our globe's ability to feed and, and nourish, you know, a growing population. Oh, we take that for granted. I just saw the stat. One and a half percent of American farmers, I mean, one farmer agriculture people make up one and a half percent of the population and they feed 330 million of them. And some of us are overfed. I'm not blaming the farmers. <laughs> well, and, <laughs> and the World Food Prize has covered all those topics. So it's typically a week long set of events in every October. And um, there it, it culminates kind of the, the high point is the award of the World Food Prize to one or more individuals, oftentimes scientists that have advanced the world's ability to feed, you know, the, the population. And Norman Borlaug, who is an incredible scientist and you know, the father of the Green Revolution, saved a billion lives through the hybrid strains that he created to eradicate wheat rust, which was causing famine all over the world. But I think particularly in, in I think in Mexico and in India, maybe in Africa, but he, but he and our founder came together to kind of reinvigorate to to invest in this world food prize and endow it and that's continued to be a, a big part of of what our company culture and fabric is about is him describing being hungry at a gravel site early on 
you know, in the Great Depression. And then with what he did through his life, this desire to give back and to fight hunger. So it's just another kind of really special part of this company that all of us who are a part of it now realize, all right, we've got to, we've got to fill some big shoes and we've got to continue to move this company forward and, and fulfill the purposes that, that, it, that it has in so many ways. So that was John Ruan, right? John Ruan Sr. is what they call him, our founder. Yeah. So did he grow this business versus a trucking company? Give us some milestones because I know you guys got a, a lot of operations now. How, but uh, do you guys, how many, tr do you guys say how many trucks and all that are just, or just a ton of them? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're a bit over 3,000 trucks right now. So it started with that one. Give us some of that. <laughs> with the one and, uh, and, gr and growing. And I mean, we've, we have, about 6,000 employees, 80% of which are professional drivers. And I think this year we'll probably we're continue to grow quite nicely in terms of revenue. But you guys are a private company, so there's no reason to share any more yeah, than we that. Are. We are. <laughs> you're, you're profitable and you do a good job. So you guys grew as a trucking company. What were some other significant milestones? So talk about um, maybe some of the next generation before you that jumped in. Well, sure. Well, and as you look at um, over, you know, starting in 1932, all of these decades, and we've been able, to, you know, even recently to just review some of the some of the things and and you know events and milestones that you know far preceded me and were happening, you know, before I was born. But in the mid 40s, as this as this trucking business grew, our founder started the first formal safety program. So, you know, safety programs are very common now across every, every good trucking company, but this is the mid forties where we've got driver trainers and all drivers are being trained. And you, so you can look back at these quotes from our founder where, you know, he says, you know, safety isn't just about, you know, equipment and trucks, which can be replaced. Safety is about human lives. And there's nothing more. To this day, you guys are one of the safest trucking companies, right? I see you've won awards. We we, ha we have won many, and some we were winning in the 50s because of these programs that we put in place. Um, but we won the, the President's Award for Safety in the ATA a, a few years ago, and we've continued to invest in it. But as we think about how we're going to lead this company forward, you look back at these quotes from our founder and and what he said about things like safety and people. and there's just this there's this continued connection and perhaps a responsibility and privilege that we feel being a part of the company now to carry those things forward. So some of the blueprints are still oh, yeah. there. Look back in our history about when, why would this business be successful? Obviously, so much has changed, and and there were many milestones, you know, of change. And as the company grew, I mean, certainly went through World War II. And so our, our founder, John Rowan Sr., registered for the draft. And this is fascinating. I was just reading this. He was declared essential to the war effort. So we think about his, the, the term essential is we've just been through a pandemic. But he was declared essential to the war effort, so he was not drafted. Um, he was actually, he worked for, there was something called the, the Petroleum Administration for War because we were one of the largest petroleum haulers in the nation. And so he worked for a, he was part of a federal agency during the war to ensure that we could sustain the war effort during World War II. Yeah, if you didn't have oil, we wouldn't have won that war. No, no. So a lot of people stepped up. And again, you just think of that, you know, all the stories and learning of the greatest generation and 
and everything they went through to get our country to where it is now. And It you know, makes our, you feel like a wimp when you look at some of that. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. You touched on some stuff early on when you're talking about your own education is the idea of pushing yourself into areas you're not comfortable with. But I think I just said it to my nephew who's 17. I said, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I said, you hear that a lot from military guys. You hear Navy SEALs say that. But I told him, I said, look, his father's very successful. I said, look what your dad does. He makes difficult phone calls all day, makes big decisions all day. None of this is easy, but that's why they're paying him well. That's why he's done well. And I think we have a default that is comfort, you know, and everybody loves the idea. Oh, I'm just going to put a blanket on and sit by the fireplace and get a drink and watch Netflix. And you're like, yeah, that's that's fine every once in a while, but it should be after you've pushed yourself, after you've been out in the cold, after you've uh, actually been a human. <laughs> that is a, a human human nature to want to seek comfort and safety. And certainly over the last couple of years through the pandemic, I mean, that was on the forefront of everyone's mind. And we had new people entering the workforce going through a pandemic where, I mean, how could you fault anyone for not wanting to focus on their safety and their health. And in many ways, you know, the comfort came along with that because so many of us weren't together and we were in our own homes. And so it played, it played a little bit into that, that kind of natural human, you know, emotion and, and need. And yet at the same time, it's exactly as you say it, that place of comfort is not where the growth happens. Right. And I do, and I think back, you know, being on site with a client every day, and observing, I worked with a great team. Actually, one of the one of the leaders on the team that I worked at at Deloitte was um, was ultimately the CEO, and I think is now the chair of Deloitte. And she was a fantastic leader. But I got to watch her every day, learn from her, see how she interacted with a client. Of course, I was right with the client every day as we were building these systems hand in hand with them. That wasn't always comfortable. I remember as a programmer having to give a presentation to the client and speak up in front of them. And I was incredibly nervous. That's where the growth comes. That, that, that discomfort is, is exactly where it, where it comes. And so we'll, the world's still settling through what, what we've been through. And, and, you know, I just try to understand that we had to shut down almost overnight and, and react to a pandemic. We don't have to do that immediately now but i just think things will things will kind of recalibrate here over the next year or two or three i certainly hope so i'm i'm i've i said a few times on my podcast in the last year we're on the tail end of covid then i think covid listens to the podcast and i got covid about a month ago a month or two ago oh my god i i I took got the damn shots i got a booster and then i got covid not once but twice but I want to switch gears with you for a sec. So Ruan again, 90 years this year. And uh, you st- I asked you yesterday when we were talking, I said, what percentage of companies make it to the second generation, make it to the third generation? And you said it's not very much. I know you had some stats from some stuff you had done. So please share that. And then explain to the best of your knowledge why it's worked at Ruan. Because for the most part, I think everyone knows somebody who says, Oh yeah, so and so's taken over their dad business, and it's not working out. And granted, not all of them are the juggernaut that is Ruan, but bigger doesn't make it easier. So again, give me those stats, and then explain why you think Ruan has done so well. 
Sure. And, you know, the statistics came from, again, Kellogg uh, Business School at Northwestern has a, a center for family enterprises. And we actually went to a week-long course there to, to learn in more detail and study family business. And that was the statistic. It was something like 30% make it to the second generation and 12 or 13% make it through the third, maybe 3% make it to the fourth. But so it gets it, harder every year because there's more stakeholders and everybody's, you get to have a stakeholder that says, hey, I don't even know my cousins, right? <laughs> I live in California. They live in New York. There's, there's some challenges. Well, and you, and so every family business, you know, has its different history, but that's what I would urge family business members to do is in leaders is go study successful family businesses because there are, there are best practices and I think our founder and, and my father-in-law put a lot of those things in place um, in terms of how the business was going to be structured, what many of the expectations were going to be of successive generations. And of course, you know, I think about my father-in-law thinking a lot about succession planning. I feel grateful. I mean, eternally grateful to him that he gave me this opportunity. But he was obviously just assessing you know, where, where the business would go and how family could become involved and 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 trying to give i think many members of the of the family you know the, we have a number of businesses opportunities to be involved but to learn and so th there's every every business and and style of ownership i think has its pros and cons and i think i probably came in to a family business looking at a number of the risks and actually through a lot of the learning realized that the family and the family culture can strengthen the business and the family business can strengthen the family if it's done right. And, and some of the things that you mentioned about the widening family tree are, it, you know, and other dynamics can be managed over time. So it's, it, there, there are businesses that have done it and for generations, you know, much better than we have. And I just think I, we all seek to learn and observe yeah. some of those best practices. Um, but it's a, it's been a, it's a, it's a privilege to, to be a part of a family business. And again, I just have been around them and, you know, was kind of raised by, supported by one in, with my own father's work. And so I kind of view them as, as sacred in a way because they're, they're special and they, they don't go to the third and especially the fourth generation very often. And so in a competitive industry like ours, a lot of then my thinking is how do we, how do we, how can we be different? to our customers in a way that's valuable because of how we're owned, because of the values and the purpose and the mission that we, that we have at Ruan, how can we use the fact that, that we are owned like this and that, that makes us a bit different. We are made it through deregulation, made it through world wars, not a pandemic, but how do we use that, that different ownership style and culture and have it be differentiating and meaningful to our customers. I think we found some important ways to do that. And then that's one of the things that sustains our business. Yep. And you kind of, you think about most of us have a career. Yeah. yeah. So I just say the grit that it took our founder to, to start this business. And you, and you look back during the, you know, during any challenging time we've had, Oh, nine was tough for everybody. The pandemic was incredibly challenging. You know, we sold a leasing business. That was a more difficult time in our business. And the, but you, we have this ability to look back and say, was it, was it any harder than sleeping in a tent as your family had no money and you traded in your car 
to start this company. And so there's a grit that has just been infused into our history and our culture based on how we were started. That is also a big part, I think, of why we've survived in society. Oh, you have to, you, you, you referenced it. And you, you almost have to remind yourself. And again, each generation feels a little more entitled. You're like, and I joke about it. I always say that I, I, I spoiled my kids by raising them indoors and letting them eat every day. But with something we all take for granted, but as you make more and more money, the, the what you take for granted becomes more and more. And I think uh, it's hard to keep that entrepreneurial spirit, but you guys have somehow done it. So I want to switch gears. And when I say you've done it, because the company continues to grow and evolve, I want to talk about those four business units for a minute. So first off, um, first off, let's talk about dedicated. And if I could throw one thing in, maybe you can elaborate on it. We just went through during the pandemic where it was really tough to get trucks. And so if someone says, oh, I don't have capacity, I don't have capacity, I don't have capacity. And there's some people who say, I have capacity because I bought my own trucks. That that poses its own challenge. You don't want, If you're a food company, you might say, I don't want to own trucks. I don't understand how to manage that. But dedicated to me is the sweet spot because explain why that's the sweet spot. I always have capacity, but I don't have to, to manage it. So explain how dedicated work is. Not everybody is, is familiar. Sure. And, and you've described it reasonably well there. I and mean, we, we look at the dedicated fleets we run. They're essentially the private fleet of our customer. But they've turned to us to say, you know how to you know how to spec trucks, you know how to run them safely, you know how to be fuel efficient, you know how to optimize routes, you know how to hire and manage drivers, and you have a culture with your first driver who started this business where you believe in this profession. And so you're the kind of company that we want to run our private, our outsourced private fleet, our dedicated fleet. And that's essentially what we are. And of course, we bring a lot of other things to the table because we have this truckload brokerage. So we've got a lot of, we're in a lot of other freight networks. We have so you can manage, back hauls with that if I want it. Exactly. We have the managed transportation, which is very similar uh, in terms of the, in terms of the complementary nature that it brings to the business. Before you leave the dedicated though. So let's just say I'm a, 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 I'm, I'm a food company. I got 10 stores or I'm a grocery chain and I've always had my own trucks. And now say, this is a pain in the ass. I, I've got, I've got this many drivers and I don't, I don't know how to treat them. I'm, I'm, I have high turnover. They're going to work at companies like Ruan that are better for them to work at. And at some point I say, Hey, I call Ruan and say, Hey, I got all these trucks. Is, can you help me? Do you take over those private fleets and say, and maybe you say, first thing you might look is it, let us assess these trucks. Let's see if these are even the trucks you should be running. So that's one way. And another way I'm guessing, and maybe you can explain the relationship a little more because not everybody gets into dedicated. But explain explain some of those dynamics, how you might take a private fleet over. Sure. And, and that's very, very common for us to do it. And so we'll be, we've presented to a number of customers over the years and said, this is how we're going to do it. Yes, maybe your fleet needs to be replaced or refreshed. We often see that. Um, we, we try to keep our drivers in the newest, safest, most fuel efficient trucks we can. So we, we do run a, a, a rather new fleet. But a lot of it is how do we ensure because there are great professionals that are likely in those private fleets driving those trucks. And so how do we ensure a successful transition of them? And so we'll show statistics, 90, 80, 90, you know, plus percent of the drivers transition. They meet our safety qualifications and we, we, we're often on site with our customers. And so we become 
not just the driving team members, but the office team members really become, we're their team. And so we've, we, 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 there's a lot of communication to drivers. I can remember a really important long running uh, metals customer of ours who their CEO and our CEO did a joint announcement that, you know, this is why we're doing this. This is going to be good for our company, for our drivers. And uh, so there's, there, there's a model that we have to do that that's been successful. In terms of in terms of taking over those private fleets, and that's been a big part of how we've grown over the years. There's no doubt about it. But there are also the, the private fleet or the dedicated fleet doesn't always make sense. These are where there's high service requirements. There's there's um, you know high service that you can run it efficiently. We've and we'll come into a lot of operations where there's a segment of it that makes sense for a dedicated fleet certain customers that need to be served, right. certain highly efficient networks that we can design that work really well for a dedicated fleet. But then there's a big part of that fleet. It may just fit one way better. It's erratic, it's low volume, it's longer lanes, whatever the case might be. And we, and we, and we would absolutely be able to have our managed transportation service find all the carriers, source them, and, and you know manage everything together. So you can supplement then, and that's the nice thing about, but I will throw this out there during the pandemic, when a lot of people are saying, I can't find a truck, I can't find a truck, I can't find a truck. And you go, this is not a bad option. And I'll throw this out there. I come from the automotive supply chain, automotive transportation costs is usually about 4%, 5%, certainly less than 10% of revenue. So it's not a big bucket. And so if you say, oh, well, I can move over to this dedicated and have the capacity and the predictability of my shipments getting here. And maybe I say I want 100 dedicated. And then you guys say, and the rest will do with managed transportation or with our brokerage. Perfect. I just want that because the idea that certain companies, especially with high value goods, couldn't get trucks during the pandemic. It just was to me, I was like, geez, OP, just go get some trucks. Go, go And by the way, don't don't buy them yourself. Or I mean, should say, don't manage them yourself. Get Ruan to manage them. It makes no sense to me that I heard so much capacity talk. Well, we've, we've had customers looking at doing all of those things and others with whom we've spoken in the industry about how they could just ensure they had the capacity to simply move their product and it was, certainly wasn't just the trucks it was the driver force as well and so a, a lot of our whole industry's challenge is how do we make sure that the next generations of drivers want to be a part of this industry and that's a that's a large conversation with a, with a, a, a lot of content in it but we've certainly the kind of jobs that we have and the kind of growth that we've had with our assets we're looking to create the kinds of jobs that the future of professional drivers are interested in filling. Right. So we talked a little bit about dedicated. What is managed trans? Sure. M managed transportation, and this is in many cases a dedicated fleet, doesn't make sense. The, the lanes don't fit. You know, one-way carriers can do a better job. There's um, more volatility in where the product goes. And so we have relationships with a lot of great carriers who who do that work better than a dedicated fleet would. And so customers will come to us and say, we have all these widgets that we create and they go to our customers or our dealers all over the country or beyond. 
don't just find the carrier, but figure out how to build the load. You know, how many, is it a multi-stop? Are we doing LTL? Are we, are we consolidating LTL into truckload? Are we moving through warehouses or cross docks? Help us design how our freight's going to move or our, or any raw materials in our supply chain. How are they going to move it, it, through our supply chain to our customers? And so that's where it's, it's a great team of logistics professionals. It's sophisticated technology and process that we build and certainly there's a big technology component to this and a lot of integration because a lot of times we're connecting at the order level to our customers and they're giving us their sales orders or what the production is going to look like or in some cases based on where the products need to go we decide the production order so that we can make the transportation most efficient and then move those products forward but it starts really then at the order level where we're managing and optimizing transportation all the way through executing with carriers, assessing the service and performance and rates and help, helping them manage the cost as well as the, the service uh, to move all their freight. So contrast managed transportation, which you just talked about with your truckload brokerage. What's the difference? Sure. I, brokerage, a very important service for us, but typically the customer saying, I already have a truckload. I really need your relationships with carriers and the ability to move that effectively once I know what, what freight I have and, and, you know, that it's on one of our trailers, for instance. Um, so the brokerage side is maybe a bit more transactional than all of the technology and the integration and the teams that are built around the managed transportation service. So I'd say managed transportation is just a, several layers deeper into kind of how our teams work with our customers. Whereas brokerage, there's still, the relationships are still Very necessary. <laughs> but, 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 but a good bit more transactional because it's a, you know, move this full load from point A to point B versus tell us where our orders need to go and how they need to move on what mode. Yep. And talk a little bit about your warehouses too. Sure. The, the, you know, the warehousing is a great example of just how our partner-oriented relationships we have with our customers have just grown over time because they've certainly, I think we're sitting there by their side along with them, helping them manage their supply chain and they get to needing another warehouse or a new initiative or a new plant. And they've turned to us in many cases to say, Hey, you run all our, you, you either you run our fleet or you manage our transportation, but why don't you also operate this warehouse for us? Which again, we have all the systems and all of the technology and the processes to go in and then execute on managing a warehouse for a customer. So it just oftentimes they like to work with a single logistics provider who can do all of those things and bring single platforms so they understand where all their inventory is, for instance, and it's not it's not segregated or in silos amongst a number of different 3PLs. You guys are not uh, the nature of all your businesses, especially a dedicated managed trans and warehouses is a deep customer relationship. It doesn't work otherwise because no, you can't say Ruan manages my my fleet and also does some managed transportation for us and they manage our warehouse, but we don't have a close relationship with them. You, you, you got to be joined at the hip. <laughs> exactly right. And, and so I think so much of how we go to market came from the initial service, which was the dedicated, which was we're your private fleet, we're your team. And that same mentality and philosophy is, has 
you know, moved into the managed transportation and how we do value-added warehousing. And really, and very, we use our brokerage capability to also serve these same customers. So it, it is very much about we're sitting beside you. Our team is yours. And we're going to help manage through the ups and downs cycles of, of transportation. And we're not in a position then to, you know, we don't look to make all of our profit, you know, when through leverage or right, right through the cycles of, of, you know, playing the market against our customers. We're sitting beside them and we need to earn a fair return for the work that we do. But we're not there. We're not there directly against them you know, trying to, to trying to leverage a, a, a cycle, you know, for our own gain against, against the, the profitability of their business. And, and, and when we do that right, which I think we do most all the time, that that's where these long 30, 40 year relationships come from because we built that trusting relationship where they do rely on us and trust them to help them execute, you know, their own supply chain operations. Yeah. I mean, this, these, the, that's just the nature of this is you're not, you're not dating. <laughs> you're not engaged. Yeah, you are sure. married. <laughs> you're, you're not going anywhere. Right, I mean, right. and contrast that with a lot of what we see in the market, which is a lot of spot rates, obviously. Then that, and, and this is important. I know you guys do some of it. It's certainly important, but I always tell shippers, always tell shippers when they talk to me about it, go get that relationship and spend the time to pick the right 3PL or the right broker or the right carrier. Don't don't try and skim across the surface and say I'm going to get a better deal here this week and a better deal there next week because that doesn't that doesn't work. And they're not profit they're not as profitable for the provider, but it also doesn't give you the service that you want as a shipper. And I think we still have this I think it's going away. The pandemic maybe made some of it go away, this idea that, oh, how do I save money? How do I save money? How you save money is you never miss shipments. <laughs> That's a, you want to save money on transportation? Don't have any, don't have any service failures. Don't, don't delay a shipment a month because you couldn't find a, 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 a provider. Sure. Well, and certainly that's the world in which we've lived the last couple of years, but there's, we use a lot of you know, one-way carriers, and they serve an important role where dedicated doesn't, and they serve, you know, a larger role in overall spend versus what dedicated does. So I, you know, we understand the the pressures that all of our customers are under to to move their freight at the best possible cost, but they, but certainly there is this service element. And so in some, in, in many networks, a, a dedicated fleet makes great sense for a, for a good portion, in some cases, all of the, the, transportation but there are many where the, the carrier relationships we have and the one-way carriers fill a very important role and so we we for us I, I think it's not all about one or the other it's what's the right mix for the customer and there are going to be service and on-time profiles of, of each of these types of, of mode that they could choose and we want to sit in the seat to help them choose the best mode and it, it may not and it's never the right answer today is the right answer two or three years from now. So we've seen many of our fleets grow and shrink depending on what the needs of our customers are, but that's the trusted role that we want to play is, you know, we're here as your partner. We offer a number of these services. We won't, there's, I think been good reasons that we haven't wanted to be in the one way kind of truckload business because it is very much about 
how you maximize the profitability on every individual load. And we prefer not really to have that transactional pricing relationship with our customers, but we want to help help them, you know, use that that service in that mode when it makes sense for them, which it often does with our managed transportation business. So that's to me, that's really the difference, and that's the role that we want to play in the trusted position that, that we hope to earn with the customers that we serve. Yep. So I've gone way over my time with you. I appreciate you doing this with me, my Ben. My pleasure. But I, I don't want to try and summarize all we've talked about. What, what I want to get from you, though, is what's next? And you answer in any order you want. What's next for you? What's next for Ruan? And what's next for the industry? I know there's, this is a big question, and you've answered any way that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I... I don't think any one of us in the industry as leaders know exactly how some of the new technologies are going to unfold. I mean, most folks that I talk with want to know about electrification. They want to know about autonomous trucks. And, you know, all of us probably have an opinion about each of those two items. And of course, what we see with a lot of technology advancements is there's the, the pie in the sky optimal ideal promise of what of what this technology can do and then as we all work on it and look at it there's the reality of what it can actually deliver and so we're most of the conversation i think we see you know in the media or beyond is is a lot about what it could be and the ideal and the aspirational and folks like us ultimately have to say well okay we're going to run this fleet or we're going to try these things and and will learn what's really possible. And we've done that with other, I mean, we've worked in alternative fuels. We had one of the largest renewable natural gas fleets um, that, that we've ran. We still, we're, we're, don't, we're not in the same position with that fleet as we were a number of years ago. But if there is an opportunity to try and advance, you know, whether it's a sustainability goal or an alternative fuel for, for different reasons, in this case, it was a customer that had, a lot of dairy cows and a lot of manure that they wanted to turn into a, a transportation fuel. We owe it to our customers to be in those kind of, of new technology, you know, pilots and experiments. And that is, a, as you look over the decades of this business since the thirties, we've been there. I was just reading a timeline that there was a headline in the seventies. We were testing a new low pollution engine from GM. And so this company, it's not a stranger to testing new technologies. And so we'll, we'll continue to, to be involved with the advancement of our industry. But obviously, at the end of the day, we need to find out, can we do this for our customers at a cost and with the rest of the service variables that, that we consider and, and something that's going to work for them? But so we'll continue to look at, you know, I, I think that drivers are going to be in this industry for a very, very long time. The great if I could add something to that yeah. is there was an accident not so long ago with an autonomous vehicle. I don't think it was a truck. The problem is that was front page news. I saw it, right? And so it's not good enough to be as good as a the best driver. It almost has to be beyond your best driver because if somebody was to say, yeah, there's a collision and well, truck drivers get in accidents every day, unfortunately. And the first autonomous, though, is going to be a bigger deal. And so it's it's a it's a conundrum we're going to have to deal with. And if I could throw one other thing out there to you, Ben. We've seen all sorts of technology. I know you guys are very tech savvy. Uh, you guys are a tech-centric company. But what's interesting is somebody says the 
the greatest freight tech innovation. And I was like, oh, you mean the truck? <laughs> the, that $250,000 truck that rolls down the expressway? That's, it's, and it's sometimes overlooked because people look and go, oh, Silicon Valley is doing this. You're like, Silicon Valley's Somebody still has to invest a ton of money for those thousands of trucks and not just getting the truck, but also making sure that it never, never has a downtime that's too excessive, doesn't get in accidents. It's, it's a tr much trickier deal to manage a fleet than it is to use the transportation management systems that we have these days. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. And Overlooked. Our, our, yeah, our, our <laughs> trucks today are, I mean, even from when I started, 15 plus years ago, they're it's so much more incredibly computerized and the safety systems that we have in place now are, are so much advanced. And so, you know, I don't think it's Silicon Valley or trucking. I think no, it's together both. To, to, to advance our industry. I, I think though, to your comment about before the pandemic, we did really see regulators starting to, to make more public statements about their concerns about accidents involving uh, just pure autonomous vehicles. And I, I can't help but wonder whether regulators are going to just simply say, we want the best of technology and we want the best of people and we want them to do it at the same time. And I mean, I think that's what I, I try to compare it to other industries. I look at aviation. You, I think there's still two pilots in every plane that we board. And I'm trying to, in my head, say, why are why is the regulatory environment going to treat trucks any differently from from aviation? People aren't in the truck, but they're 10 feet away going down the highway with these trucks. So I, I, I'm, you know, our our company will be ready to adapt to anything, but I'm certainly not of the mind that uh, we're not going to have professional truck drivers that are doing what they do for us for a very very long time. Right. So anyway. Before you go, what I'd like to do is ask you, what, what conference are you guys going to be at? I must say, I think when we talked about this before we hit record, you said you guys are at virtually every conference. But um, we, Well, we are. In our, um, you know, my close colleague is Dan Van Alstein. He's our chief operating officer, and he will become the ATA chairman in October. And so oh, I, wow. there, may, there might not be a transportation-related conference that he doesn't attend over the next year. But we're, we're at a lot of the ATA events um, I had the pleasure to be part of the Trucking Profitability Strategies Conference at, at the University of Georgia. Really enjoyed that. We're at a lot of the council and supply chain uh, management professional events. So there's a number of industries that we serve. So we'll be, I think, I think you'll see us at a, at, a, at a lot of places here. There's a, there's a Stevens Investor Conference in Nashville in November. It's mostly public companies, but I think we, I think we might have some folks there this year perhaps be on a panel or, 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 or two. Excellent. It's good to stay. Excellent. Yeah. It's good to stay connected. I think a lot of us have missed the connections in our industry over the last couple of years. So we're, so, and probably most importantly, aside from conferences, we're just reconnecting with a lot of customers and that's happening now. And it's just great to, we have one right outside the door right now that I'm going to go have lunch with uh, once we conclude. And I'm truly excited for that because that hasn't happened with the same frequency starting in 2020. So it's nice to get back to normal there. Excellent. Well, 
Ben, thank you so much. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put also a link to uh, Ruan's website. And anything else that uh, Mallory gives me, I will put in the show notes. So I really do appreciate you taking the time and taking us through Ruan's wonderful history. And congrats on their 90th anniversary. Here's to many more. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. Really great to be with you. And thanks for letting us share a little bit about our, our company. It's uh, a privilege to be a part of it and work with this great team here. Thank you. And uh, thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.